Hello and welcome back to Leader Up, a podcast of Army Management Staff College. Leader Up is a professional conversation where we discuss a broad range of leadership and leader development topics with an emphasis on the Army civilian professional. I'm your host, David Howey. On today's episode of Leader Up, our guest is Dr. Lisa Babin, and Dr. Babin is a research psychologist from the Institutional Research and Assessment Division, that's IRAD, from Army University. And she is also something that uh, I'm not familiar with and I want to learn a little bit more about today, and that is her role as a DOD gender advisor and her role specifically with the concept that is women, peace, and security. And so we're going to talk to her, to Dr. Babin, today about women, peace, and security. And so, Dr. Babin, thank you so much for coming over and giving up your time to be a a guest on Leader Up. Oh, it's my pleasure, and please call me Lisa. Okay, thank you. Thank you for that. And so let me just start with um, a little bit about your background kind of how you got to where you are in the Army Civilian Corps, and then uh, what kind of things you do in your current job. Yeah, no, that's great. So my first job as an Army civilian was to deploy to Afghanistan as a social scientist supporting the Human Terrain Systems Program. And this was in 2010, so a little way ago. Um, But I had been a university professor for 13 years and found this opportunity to explore what my area of expertise in psychology might be able to do to help military operations. And I spent six months here at Leavenworth in training and then deployed as a GS uh, to Bagram Air Base, from which the moment I arrived, uh, it became very clear that the commander and the staff uh, needed to understand how to utilize gender Uh, in support of the military operations in the area. And there were really two different things that I uh, was involved in for the 10 months that I was deployed. Uh, My main job was working as a social scientist with human trained systems, which entailed going out and talking to the local population about uh, their concerns, about their hopes, about educating them on what we were trying to do um, from a U.S. and NATO perspective. And it became very obvious that as a woman um, representing uh, the U.S. Army, that I could both speak to the local Afghan women, but then also the local Afghan men. And we, the Army, learned from the great work of the Marines uh, in Iraq under their Lioness program and the Marines Female Engagement Team program how important it was to have trained women in uniform and civilians that could engage with the full population to truly understand their perspective on what was going on in their villages, in their local area, and how we could continue to maintain positive relationships with the local people as we were traversing a very complex uh, effort in, in trying to understand you know, the, the extreme nature of what was going on in Afghanistan at the time. Um, and When I wasn't actually outside the wire engaging with the population, I had the great fortune of training some of the first female engagement teams that the Army put together uh, to kind of get at that effort. And so let's let's kind of switch gears to what we're doing now with or what you're doing now with with women, peace and security. Just tell our audience about what what your role is 
uh, and what women, peace, and security is all about. Absolutely. So uh, we'll talk a little bit more, I think, about the structure, but I was asked to be the responsible party for implementing women, peace, and security into professional military education, um, both military and civilian education. And so with that responsibility, I have to evaluate, you know, what are we already teaching? Because we already teach some of this quite well, uh, be it military police or civil affairs. But where are the gaps that we have or the misunderstandings where, where our students are gender blind to military operations? And this can be very dramatic. You know, in the early days of being in Iraq, um, the use of female suicide bombers uh, became very prevalent. Our enemy was weaponizing gender, and we were not keeping up in stride and understanding what that meant. And we lost many, many um, soldiers to and civilians to female suicide bombers. And so Women, Peace, and Security uh, came about from the United Nations, United Nations Security Resolution 1325, which we can talk more about. But it really began to recognize and help the U.S. recognize the importance that gender plays in not only crisis, conflict, war, but also in peace. And so that's what I spend my time doing is helping to educate others about why this is important to them. And so to look at uh, professional military education and kind of see where the gaps are, where things could be done differently to remind people to consider gender in, in whatever's happening, whatever they're doing. How, what's the gender ramification of, of what we're doing? Is that is that kind of what that program is kind of about? Absolutely. And there are tools that have been developed to conduct gender analyses so that you can understand whether it's internal to your organization. Do you have the right gender balance? Are you hiring and maintaining and developing the right talent you need uh, to make better decisions for your organization or the outward facing, are we engaging with our international partners appropriately? You know, are we modeling the right behaviors? Are we able to uh, stand by what we believe in for our American values and beliefs, uh, as well as all how all of this impacts national security? And so let's let's talk a little bit more about that, the UN action that you mentioned in your last response. Uh, and this is something that took place uh, in 2000, correct? 23 years ago. And what, what exactly was that that the UN did and kind of what did it set the stage for? Uh, what has it done in these intervening decades? Yeah, no, this is a foundational document now to Women, Peace, and Security that started as a grassroots effort from women in Africa and Asia that were tired of the violence surrounding them, that were tired of losing sons and daughters to the wars and the conflicts in their, their nations. And they went to the United Nations and, and fought for the recognition that women need to be a part of the peace process. And the, the UN in 2000 formally acknowledged that the changing aspects of warfare, uh, where civilians are specifically targeted, uh, you know, for dramatic impact, and that women were being excluded to these peace discussions, uh, they took that seriously and began working through the council to understand what were the aspects that needed to be put into policy, into the resolution, uh, to help really identify this need and to find better ways of negotiating, mediating, and getting to peace. And, and it has been shown over the last 23 years through the research that when women are brought into these discussions, 
the treaties, the agreements are not only more successful in the short term, but they uh, stand the test of time in the long term. And is that is that is that because uh, this uh, represents balance, whereas maybe in the past it's the the viewpoint is one sided, and now uh, it's not that it's tilting all the way to another direction, but it's it represents a a logical uh, balance to whatever the problem is. Yeah, that's an excellent way to look at it because it's not just about women. But in the past, women had never been allowed to the table to bring in their perspective. And they do have a different perspective. They are impacted by crisis and conflict differently than men and boys. And it is important to understand what that looks like. So it was completing the picture. I like how you talk about that. Not necessarily pointing the pendulum in just to women. It was completing the picture for the full population. And keep in mind that gender is a continuum. And so we talk about women and girls and men and boys, but there is a whole continuum in between that in some societies, those individuals who maybe fall out of the norm, or again, from a Western point of view, we don't understand you know, their perspective. They have to be brought in for uh, all negotiations, for all discussions, so their perspective is fully integrated into any future agreements. And then in the United States, there was a there's a public law that was passed in two, I believe it was 2017. And what did that law do, and and why is it important for women, peace, and security? No, absolutely. In 2017, uh, the Women, Peace, and Security Act was put into law, and we do annual reporting. DoD does annual reporting every year to identify how we're implementing those tenants within the law. Um, It is based on the Security uh, Council's Resolution 1325, recognizing that women and girls are underrepresented in conflict prevention, conflict resolution, and post-conflict peace-building efforts, and that even though they are more likely to experience numerous negative impacts of conflict across the world, they are not included in these discussions, and that needed to change. It also underscores research findings, as I mentioned, that show when women are involved in peace negotiations, mediation meetings, and the development of peace treaties, those efforts are more likely to be successful and sustained. And so if, if, if an agreement or a, a peace agreement or a treaty is going to withstand the test of time, having uh, a, a female voice in that and in, in what's really going to create uh, longstanding peace in this area, that's, that, that really helps when we have those voices included in that discussion. Absolutely, because again, you know, the women and the men equally play a part in both crisis conflict and peace. And we must understand what their perspectives are. We must understand, you know, what their needs are in the short term and the long term to make this work. And it's not that the men aren't doing the right thing. They are. They just have a different you know, perspective on what might need to be done for themselves, for their families, for their societies in the future uh, than the women. And again, in everyone in between that may just see what you know, the situation looks like a little differently. And so Women, Peace, and Security has four different pillars, four different areas, areas of, of emphasis. Can you just talk about what those are and a little bit about uh, each one? Absolutely. So again, the United Nations Security Council resolution is the foundation to 
to all of this. And the original four pillars of women, peace, and security are one, participation. So making sure that the voices are heard uh, from um, the population as a whole, primarily the women who had been excluded. The second pillar is protection. They must be protected, you know, to be able to have the freedom of movement to attend meetings. They need to be protected to be able to feel safe, to be able to voice their opinions. The third pillar is prevention. Anything we can do to prevent any kind of violence, any kind of conflict or damage due to crisis, particularly when it's unbalanced between the genders. And the fourth is relief and recovery. How can we get beyond, let's say, a human um, crisis that's occurred either because of nature or because of human-made? And how do we create a resilience Because life is difficult. There are many tragedies around the world, you know, to include what we're seeing in Maui right now with the fires. And the recovery part of that is the most arduous, the most psychologically difficult, and we don't often have the tools in place to help people uh, have that relief and recovery and, and bring the hope back to them. So those were the original four pillars. Uh, it has developed uh, over time, and each um, responsible you know, organization within our government looks at uh, their own implementation plan. And so for Department of Defense, we actually have three uh, defense objectives uh, that we focus on. The first is internally facing, as I mentioned before, are we doing everything we can to maximize the human potential of all of our uh, members, be it uniformed or, in, you know, or civilian? And uh, the other two are how do we work with our uh, international partners uh, in reaching these four pillars. And I wanted to ask you about this idea, and I saw this in one of the presentations uh, from Women, Peace, and Security, and it talked about meaningful participation. And what does that mean? Yeah, no, that's that's a great point because, again, when a lot of people think about equality issues, you know, they think about, we just have to have more women, and then everything will be okay. Uh, and it's not. What, what meaningful participation means is that women are given a seat at the table, but they're also allowed and encouraged to provide their unique perspective, that their voices are heard at those meetings. It is more than just meeting a quota of women or a token system that you can check the box when there's a woman in the room. It's about ensuring that the right of women to be invited, to be full partners in the discussions using their experiences and their unique perspectives and that those unique perspectives are valued and included in all aspects of the decision-making process. Tell me about this organization that is, uh, it's, it's under the Combined Arms Center. It, it's located somewhere else, but I w- I'd like you to just tell our audience about this organization it is the Peacekeeping Stability Operations Institute, or PKSOI. What is that organization, and, and what does it do, and how is it relevant to women, peace, and security? No, that's a great question. And they are actually located physically at Carlisle Barracks in Pennsylvania. And the reason for that is they do a lot with the United Nations, as you can imagine, uh, based on what we've talked about. And so having that close proximity to New York City, where uh, the United Nations is located, uh, is very important for them in having that access, like we've talked about. 
They do fall under the Combined Arms Center uh, here at Leavenworth, and uh, they do uh, speak to Mr. Greg Thompson, who's a CAC deputy, who is a formal civilian responsible for women, peace, and security for the Army. Um, But their role is very much about, as their name says, uh, how do we as a military ensure our peacekeeping operations are effective, are appropriate? How are we interacting with our international partners in their militaries? You know, are we understanding the impact on the local population we engage in any kind of military action across the world? And they're also uh, the lead for protection of civilians. As you can see, that would go uh, very well together with the peacekeeping operations. And so uh, they have a very strong portfolio in the air, in these areas, and it makes a lot of sense that they would have some um, responsibility to women, peace, and security, uh, particularly across the Army. And CAC, the Combined Arms Center, is the lead in TRADOC for women, peace, and security. And what does that mean exactly, that CAC is the lead for that? Right. And so the Combined Arms Center is, you know, identified by TRADOC as the lead for women, peace and security, because all that the Combined Arms Center does for the Army and Army University within CAC uh, has the reach to all of the schools and centers. And so is the education hub for all things that uh, that need to be included in the learning ecosystem for education and training. And so it makes good sense that Women, Peace, and Security would find its home here uh, under the Combined Arms Center. So let's talk about uh, Army civilians who are out there in the field. So, so I've, I've got somebody who's a GS-12 budget analyst at, at an Army depot somewhere toiling away with spreadsheets and numbers and books and all of that. How will, how should, how could this idea of women, peace, and security affect someone who's in a job like that or just anybody out there who's kind of toiling away at their job? What, why does this matter to them, and, and what, what do they need to know about this program? No, that's a great question because it is difficult sometimes for people to see how it directly impacts them, but it does directly impact everyone, whether it is looking internally to their unit, to their organization, and saying, do we have the right talent in place? Are we missing important talent because maybe we are gender blind to who might have this talent? You know, who's good with numbers? If you're a budget person, you want to be good with numbers, but you also have to be very good at looking into the future and planning ahead, palm cycles, several years in advance. And if you are budgeting for Uh, equipment for uh, military personnel, you want to think about what do the men need? What do the women need? And that's, you know, the S&T community has really stepped up lately because they've looked at the equipment that we require for the safety and the welfare of our our, uh, soldiers and personnel that deploy. And they recognize that the, uh, the safety equipment is made for men and a men's body is structured differently than a woman's body. Women who are deploying must have their safety equipment and must have safety equipment that fits them well so they can have freedom of movement, uh, to shoot, move, and communicate. And as women, we carry weight better on our hips than we do on our shoulders. And so the S&T community has made great strides in reformatting and changing the way uh, the protective vests that we wear when we deploy uh, actually support 
a woman in doing her best job, uh, not just the fact that it was you know, made for a man. So as an Army civilian, they play critical roles in education, training, and decision-making decision across the Army. Uh, with an understanding of the importance of including a gender perspective in everything you do, you will reveal biases that you might unconsciously have negatively impacted how you work, how you work with others, how you design curriculum, how you teach and train others, or how you build equipment, again, depending on your job. Uh, with an appreciation of women, peace, and security, you'll recognize that gender can be leveraged by the enemy to spread misinformation, create tension and discontent among your coworkers, and marginalize others from fully participating in their jobs. Ask yourself, who gets invited to the important meetings? Who's included in side discussions? Who is given mentorship, development, or other opportunities uh, that others may not be getting? What might help you do your job better? Would you like to be considered for a promotion or a stretch experience? What are the barriers in your way? So while women, peace, and security, of course, is about women, peace, and security, it actually involves the whole population, all aspects of U.S. national security. And I believe that an important component of that is the talent management. And how, how long have you worked with women, peace, and security? Yeah, it's going on 13 years now. 13 years. <laughs> yep, <And>, long time. <laughs> and what, what are some of the things that you've seen in the Army that are encouraging for you uh, as you go about this process? Yeah, you know, we really are making strides. I mean, that's not to say we don't have a lot of growth uh, still ahead of us. Our international partners have really embraced women, peace, and security, and we can learn a lot from them. Um, but over my time in my deployment, training female engagement teams, um, watching the combat positions opening up in the Army, watching women graduate from Ranger School, uh, it's just awe-inspiring. I had no idea when I started all this 13 years ago that it was going to be so pivotal to our Army becoming more and more professional. And I'm proud of that. And so is, it, is there anything that, that we need to talk about regarding women, peace, and security that I haven't asked you about today? Well, I think, you know, what comes to mind for me every day as I go about doing my own job, both specific to my job description but outside of it is, you know, it's not just on Leavenworth. It's not just in the military as a civilian where you see women, peace, and security issues uh, come up. Um, you know, in the Midwest, we do have human trafficking as a major problem, and that is a women, peace, and security issue. It affects the security of our homes, of our neighborhoods, of our children, of our families, and it's something that we need to be aware of. And as citizens of the United States, it is our responsibility to not look a blind eye at something that seems uh, a little bit odd. You know, if, if something doesn't look right, say something. You know, we do have issues with domestic violence uh, and other forms of violence that concerns me. Particularly out of COVID, we saw dramatic increases in family violence because people were you know, shut in, in their homes and they were feeling um, stressed at not being able to do the things that they would do to reduce their stress. And unfortunately, that can come out as violence in the family. So there are things as just citizens of the United States that we can be mindful of that impacts women, peace, and security. And I think through education, through candid conversations like th this one, I think we can become better at improving ourselves, not only for the Army and Department of Defense, but for our country as a whole. 
And this, I, I, let me clarify something. This is not or should not be tried to be uh, shoehorned into the concept of left versus right and, and, and that kind of the political discussion. This really is, is, is outside, is completely outside of that. Is that, is that how we should look at this? Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, the way you talked about men and women coming together and providing their perspectives is a great way of looking at it. No matter what your political point of view is, you know, being able to come together and have those candid conversations rather than shutting each other out, not including someone in a discussion because you're afraid of what might be said. Um, Obviously, we still, as citizens of the United States, need to be professionals. We need to be respectful. Uh, but we have a right to to say our opinion, uh, but we have also a responsibility to listen to other opinions in, in my way of looking at this. And I think that is something I've taken away from my engagements with Women, Peace, and Security uh, over the years is, you know, how do we get to yes? How do we help each other understand each other, no matter how our diverse perspectives might be? Because our experiences are different. How do we get to a better understanding so that we can win as a nation together rather than divided. And so Dr. Lisa Babin, uh, Lisa, thank you so much for giving up your time and coming over here and being a guest on Leader Up. I really do appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time. No, thank you. This was fun. And I hope everyone enjoys the conversation. And I hope you have more uh, podcasts on this topic because there is a lot more to know about women, peace and security. Okay, well, thank you for that. Yeah, we'll we'll keep uh, digging into this because it's an interesting topic, and I, I'm very interested in knowing more about it and understanding it. So, thank you for that. And so, leader up audience, what did you hear today that that kind of got your attention? What did uh, Dr. Lisa Babin tell you that that's resonating with you? And how well does your organization incorporate uh, gender perspectives into the decisions that they make? And uh, how well do you integrate uh, women, other gender perspectives into uh, the things that your organization does? And thank you for listening and make sure to subscribe to our uh, YouTube page and listen to this podcast, Leader Up, whenever you can. And join us again for another edition of Leader Up. As always, if you have any questions or feedback or would like to learn more about our podcast, please check the description for our email and for our website. Thanks for listening.